This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start reading from Jay, the Jewish News of Northern California. The first article, UC Berkeley police begin criminal probe of anti-Israel protests that turned violent by Maya Mursky. UC Berkeley's police department has launched a criminal investigation into Monday night's violent protest by anti-Israel demonstrators who broke a window and glass door and assaulted Jewish students in a successful effort to stop an Israeli speaker. University spokesperson Dan Mogolov confirmed the criminal investigation to Jay on Wednesday. He noted that campus police are looking into allegations of two incidents of battery, one injury caused by protesters forcing open a door at Zellerbach Playhouse, and one hate incident with anti-Semitic expression. The police department's February 26th crime log during the time of the protest at Zellerbach listed misdemeanors including trespassing, riot, battery on a peace officer, emergency personnel, battery on a person, and obstructing or resisting an officer or emergency med tech. It also cited two injuries and felony vandalism. However, campus police crime logs do not constitute official charges, which would be filed by the district district attorney's office. There should be consequences for those who violated the law, Mogulov said. The event was a talk by Ron Bar Yoshafat, an Israeli attorney and a reserve officer in the Israel Defense Forces who was deployed in Gaza following the October 7th Hamas massacre. He was invited to campus by pro-Israel student clubs to discuss international law, rules of wartime conduct, and the protection of civilians amid the Israel-Hamas war. Anti-Zionist groups Bears for Palestine, the Cal affiliate of Students for Justice in Palestine, called for a protest to shut it down, leading to a situation in which up to 200 protesters showed up outside the event and began chanting and banging on the windows and doors. The event was canceled a short time later, and police escorted Bar Yehoshaphat and attendees out of the venue through an underground tunnel as protesters broke into the building. I am profoundly shocked by the violent and hateful actions that led to the cancellation of a critical dialogue on the Israel-Hamas conflict at UC Berkeley, Bar Yehoshaphat said in a statement sent to Jay on Wednesday. It is utterly unacceptable for an academic institution, which should promote free expression and debate, to become a host of intimidation and Jew hate. Mogolov said the police investigation will take time. Any criminal charges would be handled by the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. We will see consequences for any lawbreakers, Mogulov said. As per the Chancellor's instructions, we will now be turning our attention to doing what we must so that nothing like Monday night ever happens again. The university is urging witnesses to come forward, Mogulov said, but he acknowledged that identifying alleged perpetrators will be difficult because so many protesters wore masks. The California Legislative Jewish Caucus, a group of Jewish state legislators and their allies, condemned Monday night's incident and called on the school to ensure that those who participated in acts of hate and violence are held accountable and to ensure that Jewish students, like students of all faiths, backgrounds, and orientations, 
are safe and welcome on campus. The caucus, co-chaired by State Senator Scott Weiner, was not satisfied by the statement issued Tuesday by UC Berkeley Chancellor Carol Christ and Provost Benjamin Hermine, uh, Hermelin that described their deep remorse and sympathy to those students and members of the public who were in the building fearing for their safety. The university's statement mentioned that the speaker came from Israel, but did not include the words Palestinian or Jewish. We were also disappointed to see that the statements by campus leadership responding to these incidents failed to mention that it was Jewish students and organizations that were targeted, the caucus statement said. Berkeley Hill offered mental health counseling to students who need it following the incident. Many of our students are hurt and frightened, Berkeley Hillel said in a statement. Danielle Sobkin, co-president of Bears for Israel, one of the campus groups that organized the disrupted talk, said the club plans to continue to bring speakers to campus in spite of what happened. We're just going along with our plan, she said. But students are rattled, she added, especially because protesters filmed them. She, too, was dissatisfied with Christ and Hermelin's statement, calling it a fail on the part of the university. Daniel Solomon, a history grad student who was among the attendees evacuated from Zellerbach, said he was appalled at the protesters' behavior, but he said it wouldn't stop him from attending similar talks in the future. That would be giving in to protesters who show up to trample others' rights, he said. I find this intolerable, and that's why I'll be at the next event, Solomon said. Earlier Monday, before the protests, the pro-Israel organization Stand With Us had sent an open letter to the UC Board of Regents expressing concern about the treatment of Jewish and Israeli students on UC campuses. Stand With Us has received voluminous requests for legal help with incidents involving physical assaults, criminal threats, discrimination, and harassment against Jewish and Israeli students, the letter stated. University administrators have ignored or excused such bigotry under various pretexts, including a distorted interpretation of the First Amendment that misidentifies such hateful conduct as political speech. Among the list of requests to the regents is to hold accountable demonstrators who engage in unlawful activity by zealously prosecuting such crimes and enforcing relevant campus policies. Stand With Us asked the regents to add an agenda item to their March 19 to 21st meeting to include specific guidance and instruction to UC leadership on how to address campus anti-Semitism. And next we go over to Jewish Insider. University Anti-Semitism Task Forces feature much talk, minimal action so far, by Gabby Deutsch and Haley Cohen. In the aftermath of a surge of anti-Semitism that erupted following the October 7th Hamas terror attacks in Israel, top universities including Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia, the University of Pennsylvania, and Northwestern announced the creation of new bodies tasked with studying anti-Semitism on campus and identifying how to address it. Their impending work is framed with urgency and the bodies are generally discussed using language about the importance of inclusivity on campus. But nearly five months after the environment for Jewish students on these campuses began to rapidly deteriorate, questions remain over the efficacy and mandate of such groups. 
They will also face the thorny issue of campus free speech as they delve into questions about what exactly constitutes anti-Semitism on campus. The question over the credibility of these anti-Semitism task forces was underscored this week at Harvard following the resignation of business school professor Rafaela Sadun, the co-chair of the presidential task force, reportedly because she felt university leaders weren't willing to act on the committee's recommendations. They've utterly failed to protect Jewish and Israeli students. It's shameful, a Jewish faculty member at Harvard told Jewish Insider. They requested anonymity to speak candidly about the interactions with students and administrators in recent months. The professor has seen numerous Israeli students kicked out of WhatsApp groups, WhatsApp's uh, app groups unrelated to politics because they are Israeli. The The professor also described widespread opposition among many students to topics having to do with Israel, and a corresponding reluctance to act from administrators who fear pushback from from far-left students. If you're an administrator and you care about your own personal well-being and you want to keep Harvard out of the news or off social media, you basically try not to engage with these people in a way that will provoke them, the professor said. In the end, this backfired on Harvard because their failure to take care of Jewish students contributed to the accusations of institutional anti-Semitism, the lawsuit, the congressional investigation. Harvard announced the creation of an anti-Semitism task force in January, which immediately faced criticism due to comments made by its other and Derek Penslar, suggesting that anti-Semitism is not a major problem at Harvard. The body's full membership has now been announced, but the scope and timeline of its work remains unclear. Interim Harvard President Alan Garber said in a Monday email that he expects the work of Harvard's anti-Semitism task force to take several months to complete, but he asked the co-chairs to send recommendations to the deans and me on a rolling basis. It is not clear if the university will provide updates along the way, or if Harvard's leadership will accept the task force's recommendations. At universities that already had anti-Semitism task forces prior to October 7th, those that achieve the most success generally have a budget to pursue actual work, a clear timeline for their work, and strong buy-in from administrators who must be willing to actually implement the group's recommendations, according to Miriam Elman, Executive Director of the Academic Engagement Network, which works to fight anti-Israel sentiment and anti-Semitism at U.S. universities. It's not yet clear if the newly created task forces, especially those at private universities, which don't have the same obligation for transparency as public universities, will achieve the needed support from leaders. I think if the mandate is not clear, if there's not enough resources, if the council doesn't have committees and jobs, it's just going to be window dressing, said Elman. It's not going to be able to do the work that needs to be done. At Columbia University, Shai Davidai, an assistant professor in the business school, said he doesn't have confidence that a newly created anti-Semitism task force can succeed unless the faculty on the committee changes to include more Zionist and Israeli voices. At universities, if you want to make sure something doesn't happen, you set up a task force, Davidai continued. The task force at Columbia has done absolutely nothing. They just talk. At Stanford University, 
An anti-Semitism task force created in the wake of October 7th has, like Harvard's, been mired in conversations and controversy over its membership. Faculty Chair Ari Kelman, an associate professor in Stanford's Graduate School of Education and Religious Studies, has a record of downplaying the threat of campus anti-Semitism along with recent alliances with anti-Israel groups. He resigned, citing the controversy, and was replaced with Larry Diamond, a pro-Israel professor in Stanford's political science department. Under its new leadership, the committee also expanded its name and scope in January to include anti-Israel bias. Despite the updates, Kevin Fagelis, a doctoral student in the Stanford Physics Department, who on Thursday testified at a House Education Committee roundtable with Jewish students, said that the task force has still accomplished nothing, and it's not clear that they have the power to accomplish anything. In January, Fagelis worked with the Campus Anti-Semitism Task Force to plan on uh, an on-campus forum meant to combat anti-Semitism. The symbolism was uh, the symposium was disrupted by by a pro-Palestinian protest that included threats to Jewish attendees. The task force was instituted just to appease people, Fagelis said. Stanford is aware of exactly what is going on, and if they cared, they would have done something over the last five months. The university places people on these committees in one or two ways. Either it places people who they think are going to be most sympathetic to the university, or they go straight to Hillel and ask them. These are both troubling. Fagelis expressed belief that the task force could accomplish more if it consisted of lawyers and more Israeli faculty. If the administration cared, the committee would not be made of political scientists and a biologist. Lawyers should be the ones staffing a committee that determines what constitutes anti-Semitism. Instead, they pick people who have no idea what constitutes free speech or what the code of conduct actually is. He continued, the task force is currently holding listening sessions, but it's just not clear what will come of that. After Northwestern University announced in November that it would create an anti-Semitism task force, 163 faculty and staff members at the university wrote a letter to President Michael Schill saying they were seriously dismayed and concerned by the announcement, raising concerns that the task force's work would challenge rigorous open debate. Three of the signatories of that letter, including Jessica Winnegar, a Middle Eastern Studies professor and vocal proponent, of boycotts of Israel were then named to the task force, which will also focus on addressing Islamophobia. If you really want to fix the problem, why conflate it with other issues that are going to prolong trying to find a solution to it? Mike Toplitsky, a Northwestern alum and the president of the Coalition Against Anti-Semitism in Northwestern, said of the joint Islamophobia focus. I would call it a bureaucratic distraction from trying to fix the problem. Mark Rotenberg, Hillel International's vice president for university initiatives and the group's general counsel, argued that anti-Semitism has proven to be so severe as to warrant its own mechanisms. The inclusion of Islamophobia and other hateful behavior in the group's mandate would be like if a campus Title IX office focused on gender-based inequality but was also required to focus on racism. Anti-racism may be a very important thing, but merging it with the problem of violence in frat houses is not going to signal the women on that campus that they are really taking that problem seriously, said Rotenberg, 
who works with administrators at campuses across the U.S. on anti-Semitism-related issues. That's our point about anti-Semitism. Lily Cohen, a Northwestern senior who is a member of the task force, came face-to-face with anti-Semitism on campus a year before the October 7th attacks. After writing an op-ed in the campus newspaper decrying anti-Semitism and speaking out about her support for Zionism, she was called a terrorist and faced an onslaught of hate, including a large banner that was printed with her article, covered by From the River to the Sea, Palestine Will Be Free, in red paint. I think it comes from the top, said Cohen, who noted that after the op-ed incident, no strong actions were taken to stand up for Jewish students or protect Jewish students or even just express that it wasn't okay. It fostered an environment where anti-Semitism is tolerated at Northwestern as long as it stays just subtle enough that you're not saying Jews. Afterwards, she met with university administrators to talk about what happened to her. At the end of the day, listening is not enough, she said. I don't think in any of the meetings I had with any administrators that they actually referred to what happened to me as anti-Semitism. I think that's a huge problem here, is how easy it is to say we are not anti-Semitic, we're just anti-Zionist, or we don't hate Jews, we just hate Zionists, we just hate Israel. The group started meeting in January, and it was asked by the president to finish its work in June, which Cohen worries is not enough time, especially given its broad scope. Administrators at the school have, have not instilled much confidence in her in the past, but she is choosing to be hopeful. Being on the committee, I have to be optimistic that we're going to do something and that the president will take our recommendations seriously and will put them into action, she said, because if not... What was it all for? And next, a related article from Jewish Insider. Jewish students recount a series of campus horror stories at Congressional Roundtable by Mark Rod. For two hours on Wednesday, lawmakers heard from a parade of Jewish students, each delivering the same message. They do not feel safe on their college campuses. Speaking to a roundtable organized by the House Committee on Education and the Workforce, Jewish students from Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, MIT, Columbia, Rutgers, Stanford, Tulane, Cooper Union, and University of California, Berkeley, spoke about the harassment, threats, and violence they've faced on their campuses since the October 7th attack on Israel. The students' accounts were all remarkably similar, despite coming from a range of locations and school types, including openly anti-Semitic taunts and harassment, angry mobs rampaging through campus and overtaking campus buildings, vandalism, and in some cases threats of or actual incidents of violence, all going largely or completely unaddressed by university administrators and campus police, despite repeated and sustained pleas from the students for help and support. In some cases, the students said professors and administrators were complicit or actively involved in the anti-Semitic activity. Students said that they feared for their lives and even their, uh, their safety and even their lives. The students saying they felt abandoned by their universities and had no faith in them to act to protect them pleaded for action from Congress. They said that they hoped their testimony could serve as a wake-up call to both Congress and the American public. 
As my friends from Harvard and UPenn can tell you, it doesn't end simply because presidents are replaced. Systemic change is needed, Kevin Fagellis, a Stanford University student, said. Universities have proven they have no intention of fixing themselves. It must be you, and it must be now. Shabbos Kestenbaum, a Harvard student who said he had contacted the school's anti-Semitism task force more than 40 times without a response and had been threatened in a video with a machete by a still-employed Harvard staff member, called Congress and the courts the students' last hope. Multiple students and lawmakers said that the current events on campus carry echoes of 1930s Germany or the pogroms in Russia. Some suggested potential courses of action that Congress and other federal branches could take, including leveraging U.S. taxpayer funding or the school's tax-exempt statuses, placing third-party monitors on campus and enforcing diversity requirements in Middle East studies departments, requiring them to include pro-Israel views. Students from Harvard, Penn, and MIT all said that little has changed on their campuses since last year's blockbuster congressional hearing on campus anti-Semitism, which prompted the ouster of Harvard and Penn's students. Representative Virginia Fox, Republican of North Carolina, the committee's chair, vowed that she and her colleagues would not stop their efforts to tackle anti-Semitism on campus. I was very emotional, Fox told Jewish Insider. I'm a mother and grandmother. I have one grandchild who went to college, and I'm not sure what I would have done if he had come home to say he felt threatened on his campus like these students feel threatened. No student on a college campus in this country in the year 2024 should feel threatened. Fox said that the committee's anti-Semitism investigation is proceeding deliberately, but that the schools will be held to account. The committee has already requested documents from Harvard, Penn, and Columbia, and has now subpoenaed Harvard. Fox suggested that other schools whose students had appeared Thursday could be next. And we're going to stay on this topic. Now we'll go over to JTA. Once a last resort, Title VI anti-Semitism complaints are now the Wild West for Jews on campus, by Andrew Lappin. When a Missouri school district recently received notice that it was the subject of a federal investigation related to anti-Semitism, its superintendent was as shocked as anyone. Honestly, it was a surprise to me when I saw that. Brandon Eggleston said of the moment on January 2nd, when the U.S. Department of Education informed Seneca School District that it was opening a Title VI civil rights case into its treatment of Jewish students. Seneca is a rural uh, school district located just south of Joplin on the border with Oklahoma. There are no synagogues and few Jewish students within district limits. That in itself made the case strange, but the actual incident as described in the department's letter, was even more befuddling. An outgoing senior had reportedly delivered a Nazi salute at some point during their school's graduation ceremony, an incident that no district staff had actually seen that involved someone who was no longer a student, and that Eggleston claimed nobody had reported to the district afterwards. Now federal officials were going to descend on the district, and administrators would have to spend resources providing documentation and interviews. Failure to cooperate with this process could cause Seneca to lose federal funds. 
It alleges we weren't addressing the issue, Eggleston said of the complaint, but we didn't know there was an issue. The precipitating incident of the Seneca investigation predates the recent outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war and the campus conflicts it has induced, but the confusion in Seneca is increasingly familiar as a once little-used provision under the Federal Civil Rights Act is turned into a new frontier for activists trying to battle anti-Semitism in schools and universities across the United States. Originally passed in 1964 as part of the effort to desegregate schools, Title VI protects students from all kinds of discrimination, including based on their shared ancestry or national origin. Departmental guidelines in recent years have determined those categories include alleged anti-Semitism on campuses because Judaism is widely understood to be an ethnicity as well as a religion. But while the provision is designed as a last resort for times when administrators fail to address patterns of behavior, it's increasingly being used as a first line of defense. Sometimes it's being employed in cases where just a single allegedly anti-Semitic incident has occurred. A wave of new anti-Semitism complaints filed since Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel include a growing number filed by entities that lack any connection to the schools they're targeting, that don't seek the, the consent of the students on whose behalf they claim to be acting, and that are open about wanting to undercut higher education in general. Some of the complaints filed to the Education Department's Office of Civil Rights are based on little more than one or two protests or statements that an activist read about in the news or saw on social media. Taken together, the dynamics raise questions about whether a tool long respected for its power to remedy discrimination could be rendered less potent at a time of particular need for Jewish students. If they're putting their resources into frivolous complaints, or in fact those complaints are frivolous and don't rise to the level of the standard that OCR has articulated and followed for decades, then that's a problem, said Miriam Nunberg, a Jewish former OCR staffer who now consults with families considering filing Title VI complaints. That's a big problem. Columbia Law School professor... Olatund C.A. Johnson has said that Title VI of the Federal Civil Rights Act might just be the most powerful civil rights statute. In addition to giving the federal government the right to investigate schools when, it's when students are allegedly discriminated against, it also empowers the Education Department to compel schools and districts to take action. While the department cannot discipline schools merely because an anti-Semitic incident happens, it can issue penalties when it determines that schools did not meet their obligation to protect students. Last year, the University of Vermont agreed to improve anti-Semitism training after a Title VI investigation, and last month, the Delaware School District said it would compensate the family of a Jewish student who alleged anti-Semitic bullying in a Title VI settlement. In extreme cases, the part department can withhold the school's federal funding as a result of its Title VI findings, though it has not done so in decades. The Biden administration turned to Title VI in the wake of October 7th as reports of anti-Semitism protests, graffiti, death threats, and outright violence on campuses piled up. The Education Department warned schools in a Dear Colleague letter to follow Title VI's regulations around protecting those who are perceived to be Jewish 
Israeli, Muslim, Arab, or Palestinian, and Education Secretary Miguel, uh, Miguel Cardona touted Title VI to JTA as the main anti-Semitism enforcement mechanism. Officials have also encouraged Title VI cases. In December, Catherine Lamont, the department's assistant secretary overseeing OCR, held a, webin a webinar on how to file complaints in conjunction with the Anti-Defamation League, Hillel International, Jewish Federations of North America, and the American Jewish Committee. The Hamon emphasized that filing a Title VI complaint is simpler than a lawsuit. When you file a complaint, you shouldn't have to have a lawyer. We wanted to make that really clear, she said in the webinar. We want to make sure that every school community knows we are open for business on this topic. Earlier this month, the Department of Education told Congress that it had res has received 183 shared ancestry complaints since October 7th. A department, uh, a department spokesperson declined to provide updated numbers to JTA. It has opened 74 investigations based on them to date, tripled the number of investigations opened during the entire preceding year according to its own records. The shared ancestry complaints represent only a tiny fraction of the Title VI complaints the staff receives in a year, which current and former officials put at between 17 and 19,000. The rest of the complaints may focus on disability access, racism, sexual orientation, language barriers, or other aspects of identity. The investigations take aim at elite Ivy League institutions and rural K-12 public school districts alike. More than half of the post-October 7th crop involve allegations of either anti-Semitism or anti-Arab sentiment. New investigations are being announced weekly, and JTA has filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the department to obtain more information about what they concern. Some of the investigations have the potential to directly contradict each other, forcing the department to determine, for example, whether one person's definition of anti-Semitism should supersede another's definition of Islamophobia. What's more, a rule on the books paves the way for complaints to be closed without warning. If a civil lawsuit and a Title VI complaint are both filed against an institution due to the same incident, the lawsuit moves forward and the Title VI investigation is closed. That has already happened at at least two investigations open since October 7th, according to department officials. One of those was at Harvard University, where a pro-Israel student alleged that pro-Palestinian students had assaulted him while he was trying to film a protest. Following a lawsuit that also cited the incident, OCR closed its investigation, telling JTA that the relief sought would have been the same. The other was at the University of Pennsylvania over the Palestine Rights Literary Conference in late September. That complaint was filed by the legal activist group Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law, which has filed several Title VI complaints on behalf of pro-Israel students. But it was scuttled when two Jewish Penn students with no connection to the center filed a lawsuit with near-identical allegations of anti-Semitism. It's one of the unfortunate consequences of a little bit of this Wild West atmosphere that we have right now, said Eliza Lewin, the Brandeis Center's president. Pro-Israel groups that have long lobbied against anti-Semitism and anti-Israel activity have employed Title VI in the past, and inspired by success stories like what happened in Vermont, 
ratcheted up their use of the provision following October 7th. The Lawfare Project, for example, has been actively soliciting Title VI clients on WhatsApp groups for Jewish students and on social media. We do see now that there is more benefit to aggressively pursuing the rights of Jewish students because this is something that is now recognized to be a problem, Gerald Felitti, the group's senior counsel, told JTA. More students are coming forward than before, with more of a willingness to put themselves out there and be identified as plaintiffs or complainants. The Brandeis Center, whose founder, Kenneth Marcus, oversaw a Title VI process within the Education Department during the Trump administration, set up a hotline for potential Title VI complainants. The hotline has received hundreds of calls. We have never been so inundated with cases, Marcus recently told NBC News. Yet despite all these calls, the Brandeis Center has filed relatively few complaints since October 7th. Only two complaints the center filed in that period have triggered an investigation, and only one at Wellesley College remains active. The other was the Penn complaint. Lewin said it takes time to document fact patterns or uh, evidence of behavior that could establish a hostile learning environment for Jews that the Brandeis Center can be confident will produce results. It is very possible, and I assume likely, that at least some of them do not have very strong fact patterns, Lewis said about the many anti-Semitism complaints filed by novices in the space. They're filed by people who are unhappy, who are upset, and who feel that they want to do something, and they're very well-intentioned when they file them, but they may very well be filing complaints that might not have a successful resolution. Unlike lengthy Title VI complaints filed before October 7th, some of the new cases might not relate to any patterns at all. Santa Monica College, for example, says it is being investigated because its student government briefly did not officially recognize a campus pro-Israel group, a decision the college says it rectified the next day. Meanwhile, Tulane University said its investigation relates to a single pro-Palestinian protest that was not held on campus grounds. Lafayette College in Pennsylvania said its investigation was related to a single sign, which the university had swiftly condemned at an otherwise peaceful pro-Palestinian rally. It's conceivable that a single act could be sufficient to create a hostile environment for a student in the school, Lamont told JTA, but she added it's more common for a set of factors together to be a constellation that create a hostile environment. Unlike with lawsuits, people are not required to demonstrate standing or a personal connection to an incident or school before filing a Title VI complaint. And investigations are opened without determining whether a case is substantive enough to continue. Nunberg said that when she worked at the Office of Civil Rights, which she left about a decade ago, the office would open investigations only if it appeared the allegations fit a pattern of a hostile learning environment that is severe, persistent, and pervasive, or if the incident in question was obviously harmful in an objective sense. Now officials say the merit of a complaint is not factored in when the department decides which complaints to investigate, Instead, the Education Department must open an investigation based on any complaint that fits certain criteria, whether it describes an instance of shared ancestry discrimination, whether some aspect of the alleged incident took place within the past six months, 
although exceptions are made, and whether the institution at issue receives any federal funding. Cases can be turned down on technical grounds, but if a complainant meets the basic criteria, Lamont said recently during the Jewish communal webinar on the department's approach to anti-Semitism, we will open it, period. The department believes that investigations can ultimately turn up patterns of wrongdoing that aren't alleged in the complaints that generate them. The investigation requests, when accepted, open up an investigation that is very thorough, Cardona told JTA. It could even uncover something that wasn't in the original investigation request. The department's standards have empowered a crop of emerging activists whose primary approach appears to be responding to what they read in the news. They include individuals with no track record of federal complaints and groups that are part of a broad right-wing effort to purge progressive influence from higher education. Even before October 7th, and colleges and universities were under attack from conservatives who castigated the rise of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs known as DEI. Several of them have seen an opportunity in the fight against anti-Semitism. A lone conservative named Zachary Marshall has filed more than 30 complaints since October 7th, triggering at least nine federal investigations so far. Marshall, the Jewish editor of the right-wing site Campus Reform, is the most prolific fire, uh, f- filer of post-October 7th complaints to date. He told the right-wing news outlet, uh, outlet Just the News earlier this month that he believed revelations about anti-Semitism in higher education would bring about the beginning of the end of DEI. To JTA, he said, if there's something I can do to help the situation with anti-Semitism, I'm going to do it. Another activist, Justin Samuels, is not Jewish. He claims distant Sephardic ancestry and has prompted three Title VI anti-Semitism investigations at universities and K-12 school districts he did not attend. Samuels, who is black, is a screenwriter who says he talks to conservative legal activists such as Edward Bloom. He told JTA he filed his complaints as part of a larger strategy to undo DEI as well as affirmative action and the Title IX civil rights statute protecting students from sex and gender-based discrimination. He is also suing Bryn Mawr College, a historic women's college, for not admitting men. The way I think of it, the way to confront discrimination, including anti-Semitism, is to get rid of that across the board, Samuels said. By its nature, DEI violates civil rights laws on multiple accounts, not just on anti-Semitic or Jewish issues, so I basically say get rid of DEI. Another anti-Semitism investigation at Yale University is basically uh, is based on a complaint filed by the Defense of Freedom Institute, a conservative legal group that seeks to dismantle race and ethnicity-based policies in higher education. Donald Doherty Jr., the group's senior counsel, said he had a simple answer for why his organization, founded in 2021 by former Trump and Bush-era education officials, has filed several other Israel-related Title VI complaints since October 7th. The statute allows third parties like ourselves to get involved, he said. 
The Brandeis Center and Lawfare Project have been accused in the past of presenting exaggerated pictures of campus anti-Semitism, but they say they have always filed complaints on behalf of students with whom they work closely. By contrast, the new crusaders often do not speak with the students on whose behalf they are filing complaints, even as they mention the students by name. Doherty said the Defense of Freedom Institute learned about the Yale students named in its complaint from reading news reports. I haven't spoken with them, but I have no sense that they are upset about it, he said. In fact, they were asking the Yale do something about this. They themselves are protesting to their school about that. So this is completely consistent with their opinions, at least as expressed in the media. One of the two named students declined to comment to JTA about the investigation. A parent of the other student did not return requests for comment. Marshall says his complaints are sometimes informed by his own interviews with Jewish students, but that he has also filed complaints without speaking to anyone on campus. I haven't spoken to as many Jewish students as I would like to, he said, chalking this up to his sense that Jewish students are afraid to discuss their experiences on campus publicly. At Johns Hopkins University, students say they were surprised when a complaint by Marshall triggered an investigation there this month. Initially, we had no idea as to how or why this complaint was filed, especially because it did not come from Hopkins students themselves. Senior Yael Klutznik, a campus pro-Israel activist, told the school newspaper. Some students are upset because this investigation can sound inflammatory and as though anti-Semitism on our campus is thriving. We are worried that investigation can portray student Jewish student life as worse than it actually is and drive away Jewish prospective students. For Julia Jassy, a recent University of Chicago graduate and CEO of the advocacy group Jewish on Campus, speaking to Jewish students on the ground is the most important thing when filing a complaint. Jewish on Campus has filed a small number of Title VI complaints in partnership with the Brandeis Center including the Vermont case that produced tangible results for that university's Jewish students. To match good intention with good impact, it's really important to speak to students and to hear what they need at their specific school. When asked about the new Title VI complaints, uh, complainants who do not consult with Jewish students, Jassy declined to comment, saying she could only speak for her own group's policies. Among the voices concerned about the direction some of these investigations are going is Marcus himself, who worries that anti-Semitism watchdog groups may be creating a boy-who-cried-wolf problem. We don't think that it serves any good to file frivolous law uh, cases or cases that are not wanted by the Jewish students, he told JTA. It doesn't serve the Jewish community to have shoddy complaints could fall apart upon quick investigations. Whether investigations move quickly remains to be seen. Nunberg said that most cases during her tenure in the Office of Civil Rights were resolved within 180 days, the Education Department's stated deadline. But now the Department has opened investigations that date back to 2016, even as fresh investigations appear to be leapfrogging over older ones. Marshall said he has spent, uh, he has already spent hours sitting down with department attorneys to discuss his complaints, providing them with the information they will use to pursue their investigations. 
The office is focused on staffing up to wade through the onslaught of complaints and conduct, uh, conduct its mounting tally of investigations, but with only half the staff and resources it had in the Obama era, thanks to cuts under the Trump administration, that Cardona is lobbying to reverse. We have to let our colleagues on the Hill know that we need more resources so that we can get to these cases, Cardona told reporters during a press briefing on campus anti-Semitism earlier this month. The department said it hopes to hire another 150 investigators to expedite its cases on top of the 400 it employs currently. Marcus rejected the idea that budget cuts during his time leading the OCR were to blame for the caseload and dismissed Lamon and Cardona's claims that they need a bigger budget from Congress to adequately handle the new cases. There are many factors that impact whether OCR is able to effectively and efficiently address anti-Semitism cases, he said. The budget is a much smaller factor than you might think. Marcus added what is often needed to move anti-Semitism cases is a mix of political will, prioritization, and an emphasis on prompt resolution. These factors are vastly more important than the budget. You could increase the budget of OCR by tenfold and still not get to these ca- not get these cases to move. Lamont said she is determined to give each new case the time it deserves. These are very serious issues that people are raising, she told JTA about the people filing complaints. Anybody who comes to OCR is coming to us with their deepest concerns about students' experience in schools. They deserve a comprehensive and correct answer. Reaching correct answers will compel investigators to wade through some of the most complicated issues facing American education institutions today. The Wild West dynamic appears poised to include potential pistols at dawn conflicts between cases. Marshall's complaint that prompted an investigation at Arizona State University, for example, rests partly on claims that the school should have disciplined students who chanted the phrase from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which most Jewish groups say is anti-Semitic. At the same time, an investigation into a K-12 school district in Minnesota, prompted by a complaint from the local council on Islamic, on American-Islamic relations, will determine whether its decision to suspend two students who used the same phrase was Islamophobic. Cardona insists that the department will be investigating such incidents on a case-by-case basis rather than making blanket statements about certain phrases or practices. It's hard to broaden and make a statement on the specific cases you're referring to, nor would I want to comment on open cases, Cardona said at a recent press briefing when asked about the contradictory nature of the cases. What I will tell you is that we need to start with the students feeling safe on campus. But without the clarity that could come from more explicit guidance from the department, Title VI runs the risk of being weaponized by by ideological actors. According to Jonathan Feingold, a professor of higher education at Boston University, uh, rather a professor of higher education law at Boston University, who studies equity issues. I actually think that the failure to help various constituencies, whether it's university administrators or students, more carefully tease out those distinctions actually makes it more difficult for universities to ensure that students are able to have a campus free from racial harassment, Feingold said. 
For some schools facing Title VI investigations, the uncertainty is more fundamental. While the department insists that every school is informed as to why it's being investigated, several schools have told JTA that they still have no idea what theirs are about. More than six weeks after an investigation was opened at Whitman College, for example, a spokesman for the Walla Walla Washington Private School told JTA they still do not yet know the specifics of the allegations. Back in Seneca, Missouri, the bewildered superintendent is most upset by the investigation's implication that the school district wouldn't have known how to address an anti-Semitic incident if one occurred. His staff, he said, has received training on discrimination, harassment, and bullying. We're on the lookout for it, Eggleston said, so it's not something we would take lightly. And now we go over to the New York Jewish Week. Deborah Lipstadt urges New York Jews to bring the joy of Judaism despite increased anti-Semitism by Luke Tress. Deborah Lipstadt, the State Department's anti-Semitism envoy, is tasked with monitoring discrimination against Jews in countries across the world. But since October 7th, she's also been paying attention to anti-Semitism closer to home, in her native New York City, where the New York Police Department has documented an average spike of over 100% in anti-Semitic hate crimes reported monthly since Hamas's invasion of Israel and the ensuing war. In the past four-plus months, Lipstadt said she has seen anti-Semites in the United States and abroad inspire and feed off of each other. She told the New York Jewish Week that in New York City, where she gave a speech to a crowd of hundreds on Tuesday, night, uh, Tuesday night, that she hopes Jews will not begin hiding their identity and go underground. I think we're going to be fine, but I hope we won't dramatically change our lifestyle, she said in an interview ahead of her talk at Central Synagogue, the large Midtown Reform congregation. I really hope people will not remove their mezuzahs from outside their door. She urged the audience at Central to bring the joy of Judaism uh, to their lives despite growing anti-Semitism. Being Jewish is not something you do defensively, she said. We have to be as much propelled by the pulls as we are enraged at the, by the pushes, she said, drawing applause from the crowd. Lipstadt, a renowned Holocaust scholar who has served in the ambassadorial role since 2022, has helped the Biden administration combat anti-Semitism, including through the administration's strategy to counter anti-Semitism, which was rolled out last year before the October 7th attack. She told the New York Jewish Week that the administration had not changed its approach to combating anti-Jewish discrimination since the attack, but that it had intensified its efforts. Weeks after the Hamas attack, the Biden administration met with Jewish leaders to discuss a reported nationwide spike in anti-Semitism. The White House has prioritized addressing campus anti-Semitism in particular and has also expanded Lipstadt's staff. Lipstadt said the hatred has become a two-way street between the U.S. and Europe, largely due to social media. It used to be that what happened in Europe sort of migrated to the United States, and now we're seeing it going both ways, she said. She also repeated a message that she has been advancing for months, predating October 7th, that anti-Semitism is a threat to democracy. She told the congregation that bad actors, particularly autocratic regimes, 
are fanning the flames of anti-Semitism to undermine faith in democracies, and that all government leaders agree with that assessment, as do members of the U.S. intelligence community. When members of the public buy into anti-Semitic conspiracies claiming Jews control elections, media, or banks, they have essentially given up on democracy, she told the audience at Central Synagogue, indicating a loss of faith in the system or that the government cannot ensure their welfare. She said that trend had become more pronounced since October 7th. She highlighted increased anti-Semitism on social media platforms controlled by the Chinese government, speculating that promoting anti-Semitic messages could be a way to subvert American interests. She compared efforts to stoke anti-Semitism to a cooking spoon to stir up the pot of societal discord. If people don't feel safe due to the real or perceived threats, they lose faith in their governing system, she told the congregation. If you think you're a failed state, if you think the government can't protect you, if you think terrible things are going on, then you feel unstable, she said. Lipstadt was in New York for a series of meetings, including on Wednesday at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. Ahead of the trip to New York, she traveled to Germany for the Munich Security Conference and held meetings in London. Her visit to Central Synagogue and conversation with its rabbi, Angela Buchdahl, was co-sponsored by the Synagogue and UJA Federation New York. During her visit this month to Europe, she met with American uh, United Nations representatives and UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, whom she applauded for speaking passionately about Hamas hostages and anti-Semitism. Guterres has come under fire from Israel and its advocates for saying in October that the Hamas attack did not happen in a vacuum, as well as repeatedly expressing concern about Israel's military operations in Gaza alongside his condemnations of Hamas. Lipstadt decried rhetoric from others in the international community, however, saying recent statements by the UN Special Rapporteur for Palestinians, Francesca Albanese, were beneath contempt and overly anti-Semitic. Albanese, who once said that the Jewish lobby controls the U.S. and has compared Israel to Nazi Germany, said this month that October 7th victims were not targeted because of Judaism but because of Israeli oppression. The statements drew public rebukes from Israel, the U.S., France, and Germany. And next from JTA, one-third of Americans are reluctant to vote for a pro-Israel politician anti-defamation league survey finds by Luke Tress. More than a third of Americans would be reluctant to vote for a pro-Israel politician. One-fifth are uncomfortable buying products from Israel. More than 40% at least somewhat agreed that Israel intends to cause as much Palestinian suffering as possible. But nearly all U.S. adults believe Jews have the right to an independent country. Those are some of the results of a survey published Thursday by the Anti-Defamation League measuring anti-Semitism and anti-Israel views across the United States. The survey found that anti-Semitic views had increased since the ADL's last such study, taken prior to Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel and the ensuing war, though anti-Israel views had not. Thursday's survey polled more than 4,000 U.S. adults in mid-January with a 1.5% margin of error. As it has for decades, the ADL presented respondents with a list of 11 anti-Semitic tropes 
such as Jews are more loyal to Israel than to America, and Jews have too much power, and found that nearly 24% of respondents believed in six or more of them, an increase of four percentage points since 2022. When it came to Israel, the survey's authors said the overall number of respondents who held anti-Israel positions had not drastically changed since October 7th, based on a survey taken last summer, but the group found that views had become more polarized, with more respondents saying they strongly agreed or disagreed with negative statements about Israel. The poll found that many respondents viewed Israelis as callous or malicious toward Palestinians, with 43% agreeing strongly or somewhat that Israelis intend to cause Palestinians as much suffering as possible. A similar proportion said Israelis were indifferent to Palestinian suffering. Nearly 36% agreed to some extent with the statement, if Israelis had their way, they would live in a world where all Palestinians were killed. One-fifth supported strongly or somewhat the removal of Israeli products from grocery stores, and more than a third agreed to some extent with the statement, I would not consider voting for a pro-Israel politician. Whether that finding bears out in the upcoming presidential election remains to be seen. While they disagree on Israel policy, all major candidates say they are supporters of Israel. In some cases, criticism of Israel overlapped with age-old anti-Semitic conspiracies. The survey found that 30% of respondents agreed in some measure that supporters of Israel control the media, and one-third somewhat or strongly agreed that Israel operatives are secretly manipulating U.S. national policy through the pro-Israel lobby APAC or other influence tools. Despite the findings regarding anti-Israel beliefs, the overwhelming majority of respondents, 88%, said Jews had the right to an independent country. Anti-Israel views were more widespread among young people and correlated with anti-Semitism, the poll found. Surveys taken since October 7th have consistently found lower levels of support for Israel among young adults. Many respondents, especially younger Americans, expressed at least some degree of comfort with supporting Hamas. Slightly more than half of Gen Z respondents said they would be comfortable having a friendship with a supporter of the terror group. 27% of all respondents said it would be acceptable for a close family member to support Hamas. 24% of all respondents said they have a close friend or family member who dislikes Jews. Younger respondents were more likely to hold anti-Semitic beliefs, the poll found. Millennials agreed with the most anti-Semitic tropes, on average, followed by Gen Z. ADL polling showed that belief in the tropes generally declined between 1964 until 2014, when the numbers started trending upward. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always for listening.